During this Advent season, during any Advent season, as Christians, our focus goes to Bethlehem. As humans, we are drawn by our emotions to the birth of a baby. We're drawn to the, to the ordinary nature of the event. A young man and a young woman awaiting the arrival of a child. We're drawn to the, to the humble nature of the event. Shepherds, a manger, a carpenter, a small town. And we're also drawn to the miraculous nature of the event. A star, a virgin, singing choirs of angels that show up to shepherds. We're drawn as well to the combination of, of lowliness and loftiness. Wise men being led to really a nothing town to bring expensive gifts. We're drawn to the uh, intrigue of the event. A jealous king that wants to do away with this baby, only to be foiled by a dramatic escape. All these things make the Christmas story and the original events uh, a matter of interest for Christians and others. It's so interesting and, and so amazing that we are called to remember these events every year. It's a time when churches gather and when families gather. It's a time of festivity and celebration. It's a time of uh, nostalgia and sentimentality and tradition. But for us as Christians, Christian, uh, Christmas has to be about a person. It's about how God came to this earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the apex of God's grand purposes for humankind. So that his greatness and his kindness and his mercy are revealed. As he acts in time and space to send his son to reconcile humankind to himself. To do what the first uh, human could not do. Merely, uh, or namely, to live as a human, yet not sin. This son would then go on to be punished and to suffer and to die on a cross as if he had sinned. But then to show that he conquered over sin and death and that this uh, sin issue that drove a wedge between God and humankind had been satisfied, in order to do that, God raised this son from the dead. All of those events, which really spanned a short time in history, 33 years, started in Bethlehem. But all of those events of that short period in time are events that form the center of the Christian faith. They form the center of our lives. As Christians, we owe all of our, as we just saying, all of our hopes and dreams. We owe our lives. We owe our uh, eternal futures. We owe the creation and the life of our church even to those events. We could say that this person, this child slash king, that's the focus of Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the foundation of our faith. All of our hopes start with him and end with him. Without him, everything falls apart. With him, everything holds together. That's the nature of a strong foundation. So during this Advent season, as we 
do all our traditional things, as we hang our decorations, as we perform pageants, as we have our banquets, we focus on Christ. Sometimes the world around us, or many times the world around us, misses that focus. So as Christians, we, we cannot miss that. We love, as Christians, that sort of roll-off-the-tongue saying that, that uh, he is the reason for the season, and rightly so. But as we keep making our way through 1 Corinthians, we'll see today how Jesus Christ is the foundation for everything that we do as a church. Christ is the foundation, and God allows us the privilege of building on that foundation. That's what the section that I read before is all about. It's, it directs us to Christ as the one everything the church teaches and does revolves around. And it challenges us to reflect on how we are building on that foundation. The challenge is given because our work will eventually be subject to a test from God himself. So that's where we're going today. And I encourage you again, if you close your Bibles, to open them back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. The writer of this letter is the Apostle Paul, and the recipients of this letter, original recipients, are the Corinthians, the, the Christian church in the city of Corinth. This is a city where Paul stayed for 18 months. And while he was there, during those 18 months, he preached the gospel, and out of his gospel proclamation, he planted a church there in Corinth. But now, some years had passed, and he feels the need to write a letter. He got a report that a few things had gone uh, sort of sideways with the church, and so he writes a letter to, I was going to say encourage, but it's actually a very strong encouragement to them to get back on course. A main part of the, uh, the deal for them is that they were drifting. They were drifting back into an affection for the things of this world instead of for the wisdom of God. They were becoming more concerned with their reputation than with God's reputation. The message of the cross had taken a back seat to the wisdom of man. And so Paul, in our uh, common parlance, Paul gets into their grill. He confronts them. And in this section, he addresses specifically their view of leaders and the leaders themselves. In verses 1 to 9, we saw last week, if you were here, that Paul planted the church and it was Apollos that watered it. But even there, he says that any credit for the growth of the church has to go to God alone. And then in verses 10 and following, he, he addresses how leaders build the church. He says that they're going to be held to account for how they build. The underlying challenge to leaders is Will they keep the main thing the main thing? Or will they side for the world? Will they adopt the world's methods? Will they bring in the world's philosophies? Will they shape uh, the church according to the culture? Or will they shape the church according to Christ? Which is a way of shaping the church that is fundamentally different than the culture. Remember, he talked about earlier in chapter 1 and 2 what to the world is foolishness is for us that have been transformed by God's word by Jesus Christ is to us wisdom 
But that's really what this comes down to. How will the leaders shape the church? And so he writes in verse 10 there, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Here again, Paul goes back to what he already said in verse 6. He's just sort of using a different metaphor here, a different picture. There he was a farmer. I planted, Apollos watered. But now, he's, uh, he, he's a construction guy. Like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. He's a foundation layer. He's, he's, he's the pile driver. That was Paul's special skill. But that skill was given to him by the grace of God. That's how Paul uh, diffused the Corinthian tendency to be attracted to the skill of people rather than to God, the work of God. He, he always wants to redirect attention back to God. In the last section, it's God who gives the growth. At the end of chapter 1, let the one who boasts, boast in whom? In the Lord. All these things that are going on in your church, Paul says to Corinth there, all these people who are coming in and, and preaching with power, just make sure, church leaders, that your praise and your adulation is reserved for the one that gives the grace rather than for the, the speakers themselves. The power is ultimately in the message, not in the messenger. It is the power of, cross, of the cross. It is the message of Christ crucified. And here... Paul is the pile driver, it says here, but only according to the grace of God given to me. The Greek word there is, is for master builder is architecton. You might know the English word that comes from that. We have a few architects, or at least would-be architects in our church. Yaku and, and um, uh, who is it? Matt is studying to be an architect. I think he's going to be coming home soon for Christmas, isn't he? Not yet, though, right? He's not here, is he? Tomorrow? Oh, I knew it was very soon. But Paul calls himself here the architecton, the architect. Paul did some of the initial foundation work in planting the church in Corinth. But then he says, and someone else is building upon it. So the building doesn't stop with the foundation. That's just the start of it. But that's the way it is with the church. The foundation gets set in place and then others come and they build on top of that foundation. This church is a prime example of that. Back in 1929, this church was planted. And it was uh, dedicated because of a desire in this area to... uh, There was already a couple of churches in this area, but they wanted a church particularly in Wetaskiwin out of the desire to have a gathering place for believers. And I was encouraged to read that the very first week of every year back then was set aside as a prayer week. Every January, the first week of the year, was a prayer week. And that commitment already showed that this church, from its very onset, from the very beginning, made God a priority. They recognized uh, that they couldn't do anything unless they were completely dependent upon Him and on Him alone. And so the foundation was set. And then the builders came along, the both the pastors who would preach the word and the people who would lead various aspects of the church. In those early years, the, the pastor here was also the pastor at New Sweden and at Melmo. And so they just had an evening service here at our church, a Sunday night service. In 1943, Pastor Jens Jacobson 
had a desire to make Mission Church the spiritual center of the city. He reported spiritual interest and harmony among the believers. He was building on the foundation set by Pastor Wickstrom and others. It was interesting to note that many of the pastors only stayed around here for two or three years at the most in those early years. And, and I'm not sure what that was all about, but, but they were all builders. And we know that even the Apostle Paul was at Corinth for only 18 months. But then in 1969, Pastor Gillett came for seven years, the first longer-term pastor. And he had a passion for evangelism and for compassion, uh, and compassion for the lost, and even for young people. That continued under the ministry of John Ginter. I was encouraged by his report in 1979, the 50th anniversary of this church. He, he wrote in that booklet that got put together, we praise God for what he has done in the scores of lives affected by his work here. However, he continues, we need to press on with renewed dedication and commitment. He says the Lord's return is nearer than ever, and there are yet many more who need to be reached with the gospel. Then he ended his comments with Philippians 2.15. He says, let's make this our goal, that you may be blameless and harmless, children of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He and the people that attended here then, which includes some of you that are in the room here today, were building on that foundation. Well, that work continued under the ministry of Dan Lytle and Lyle Wall, and then Pastor Wayne came, and he has been the longest-serving pastor in the history of this church by a long shot. We had the opportunity to honor his ministry yesterday, but I came across a document from, I think it was probably from around 2002 or so, that had a list of, listen to this, foundational values, just likely put together by Pastor Wayne and, and the elders in those days. Included in those foundational values were this. Bible-based preaching and teaching. Christ-centered life and ministry. And dependence on God demonstrated in prayer. There was a commitment all the way through to build on that foundation. Some Swedish believers back in 1929 laid the foundation. Someone else built upon it and those foundational commitments have carried through until today. And by God's grace, we will keep on building on that foundation until Christ come back, comes back for his bride, for the church, building upon it. What is that foundation? 11. The foundation that is laid is Jesus Christ. It is the church, the foundation of our church. Our, or around buildings, this beautiful building that, that we have erected, or performance is on the praise of men. Can't revolve around. Our ministry here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church has to revolve around Christ and Him. His accomplishments as it was this morning. Our preaching and our teaching needs to fundamentally be about Christ. And when it says Jesus Christ, it's everything about Christ. His life, His ministry, His saving death, His, his resurrection, His second coming. He is the beginning and He is the end. He is the Word. 
And so that's why one of our foundational values back in 2002 and continuing on to this day is Bible-based preaching and teaching. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to him and helps us see our need for him. The Gospels record his life and his ministry. The epistles point back to him. Revelation points to his second coming, to the consummation of all things. The foundation for the church is Jesus Christ. He is the base on which we build. We can't ever change this foundation. If we were to change the foundation, this, this project, we couldn't rightly call it a church anymore. It would be another kind of building, but not a church. No one can lay a foundation, verse 11, other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That much we know. So how do we do that practically? Well, we make Christ the center of everything. We see every issue through the lens of the teaching of Christ and the person of Christ. If we want to know about stewardship and giving, we look to Christ. He gave himself up for you so that you might gain the blessings, the the richness of salvation. How could you do any less for the work of the Lord? Give generously and without compulsion. Why? Because Christ gave generously to you. If we want to know about marriage, we look to Christ. Ephesians 5, 24 and 25. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If we want to know how to deal with conflict, we look to Christ. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were, indeed you were called in one body. If you want to know how to forgive, look to Christ. Colossians 3.13, if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Christ is the foundation. We live and we teach on that foundation. As teachers, we have to commend Christ at all times. We try to help people to see how they can build their lives on the foundation of Christ. He is the center. Someone has said he's both the center and the circumference. He's in the middle and he's everything on on the outside. And we somehow have to live within that circumference. Outside of the circle, within the circumference. But the exhortation in this passage is really to the builders. Back in verse 10, here it is. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Christ is the foundation. That much is sure. And for a church to be a church, the foundation isn't in question. But we are to take care how we build. Paul keeps on going with this picture of the building. What? What kind of building does he have in mind? Well, verse 16 answers that for us. He's talking here about God's temple. So the church is like a temple. And now he's going to give us uh, some possibilities and their outcomes in regard to building the church. And so you'll see in the next few verses there are a lot of sentences starting with if. In verses 12 to 17. Verse 12, if anyone builds. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up. Verse 17, if anyone destroys. Paul here wants us to be careful how we build upon the foundation of Christ. 
First, he brings up a, a bunch of different building material, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. What's, what's going on here? What's, what's he talking about? Well, try to track with Paul here. We find out in verse 12, if anyone builds with, with those materials, with gold, silver, uh, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, that each one's work will become manifest. It will become manifest in the future. Now, so, so we don't know what kind of materials we're, we're using as we're building. But there is going to be a time when we find out. There's going to be a, a materials disclosure. The materials will be revealed. When? It says there, the day will disclose it. This is, this is talking about a future judging, an assessing, an, an evaluation day that's going to happen. And on that day, the kinds of materials that are used will be revealed. What's the agent of revelation here? Well, it's fire. Flames. Combustion. So let's take a step back. Christ is the foundation of the church, and some kind of a structure is getting built, God's temple, and certain people are building this. In this context, as we learned already, it's the leaders of the church. But they are going to be held to account for how they build it. Their work is going to be inspected and adjudicated. It's going to be tested there, verse 13 says, through fire. And when we look at that list of materials and think about fire, we know that some of those materials are combustible and others of them are non-combustible. And so we can divide them really into those two groups. There's six materials, but really only two groups. The wood, hay, and straw are in the combustible group. They're, they're not going to survive fire. They'll get burned up. But gold, silver, and precious stones are not combustible. They're going to survive through fire. So again, we have to ask, what is Paul getting at here? What's the warning to the church in Corinth? Here's how I think that these dots connect. Paul planted the church. He planted it on the foundation of Christ. But now all these other workers are coming in, generation after generation, are coming in to build it up. And their work is going to be tested. It'll be tested on how they built on top of the foundation. In other words, did the leaders sufficiently build on top of the foundation? Or did they build off to the side somewhere using bad materials? The material has to come up from the foundation. Or to put it another way, the teaching has to have a connection to Jesus Christ. The builders will be accountable for building upon Christ. And so just like a foundation controls the shape of and the integrity of the rest of the structure. So Jesus Christ has to control the shape and the integrity of the church. Christ must hold up the church. And Christ has to work his way through every part of the church, through every ministry, through everything that is taught, through everything that we sing, through every good work that we do, through our evangelism, through uh, all of our missions efforts, through our committee meetings, through our prayer meetings, through our business meetings. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. That's right out of Colossians 1, verses 18 and 19. 
This is a sobering passage, especially for leaders, but also for future leaders, and in some ways for all of us that make up the church. In our lives as believers, in the things that we do, in our attitudes, in the way we, ways we treat one another, how does Jesus Christ, his teachings, his accomplishment, inform our actions? Are we taking care how we build upon Christ? I said this is sobering. It's sobering because our work will be tested and then revealed, made plain, exposed. Ephesians says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. So how do you measure up? How does our church measure up? As, a ch- as church leaders, how do we measure up? Well, verse 14 and 15 give us some of the outcomes and some hints on the kind of church that we should aim to construct. We want to build a kind of church that will last that will stand the test of time, that will stand the test of fire. We don't want to build a church that will be compromised in any way. These verses say that there is a kind of work that survives, and there's also a kind of work that burns. I'm going to quote D.A. Carson here again. His book, uh, The Cross and Christian Ministry, has been really helpful in going through chapters uh, 2 and 3 for me. But he says this, he says, It is possible to build the church with such shoddy materials that at the last day you have nothing to show for your labor. People may come, people may feel helped, people may join in corporate worship, serve on committees, teach Sunday school classes, bring their friends, enjoy fellowship, raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. If the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he says, we may be winning more adherents than converts. The fundamental, non-negotiable, that without which the church is no longer the church, is the gospel. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He ends by saying, we have to remain utterly committed to the centrality of the cross, not just at vague theoretical levels, but in all of our strategy and practical decisions. End quote. So the word for us here is, let's not leave the center. Let's not build uh, porches that are off to the side of the foundation. Let's remain committed to the gospel. Let's commit ourselves to building on the foundation of Christ. That is the only way that we'll ensure that when the fire comes, our work will survive and won't go up in flames. So that's the warning. But did you also notice that there's a promise here? If the, if the work survives the fire, if it makes it through the inspection, if our material turned out to be gold, silver, and, and precious stones, we will receive a, uh, verse 14, a reward. I hope you've seen this as we've gone through this, but just as a quick aside, this is not talking about heaven and hell here. This is talking to Christians who are saved. In fact, verse 15 says, even those whose work is burned up will be saved as through fire. 
But it is saying that there will be different levels of rewards when our works are judged. Some will be deprived of rewards. I think that's what the words suffer loss there mean. And some will get rewarded in the end. There's going to be a prize for those workers who stuck to the foundation, who didn't get sidetracked. So in Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But I think the real reward is that we get praise from God. That's the reward. In the next chapter, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I don't think there's going to be a better reward on the last day than to hear from Jesus himself these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. As those who build and those who lead the church, let us take care, let us be careful not to lose the reward. Let's not get caught up with peripheral issues. Let's make sure we don't teach things that will lead people away from the cross. As teachers and as leaders, we need, need to know our Bible well, and we need to study our Bible well so that we will instruct our people well. And Paul really drives us all home with, with a note of gravity and seriousness, with some oomph in those last two verses, verses 16 and 17. Look again at those. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's basically saying here, why would you do anything else but hold up Jesus Christ? Why would you ever stray from the foundation? Don't you know who you are? As a believer, you are God's temple and you have within you the spirit of God. When you move away from the foundation, when you move away from the center there's a possibility that you can actually destroy the church. Church history is full of examples of churches that died because the foundation eroded, because the gospel started to be assumed and not taught. Even in our day, denominations that once majored on the gospel are now uh, more concerned about social justice than justification by faith. But those kinds of leaders from this passage we know are in danger of God's justice. Destroy the temple, and God will destroy you. Brothers and sisters of Wetaskiwin Mission Church, let's make sure that we don't get diverted from the message of the cross. Let's make sure we don't get diverted from the proclamation of the gospel, from Christ and Him crucified. This is not an event that happened in the past. It is that, but it is an event that has continuing effects, and we must continue to hold it up before the congregation, before ourselves. There are so many things that are off to the side that can divert us. And in Corinthians, it was divisions and squabbling inside the church or pride or, or immorality or uh, unholy alliances. Those kinds of things and others, much, many others, are always lurking, always threatening to move us off the foundation. So let's commit ourselves to, to continually examine ourselves, examine what we are doing, examine how we are building to make sure that we haven't fallen into any of those things. And then if we find that we have, let's be the kind of people that are quick to repent and to change course. And during this season of Christmas, I would just encourage us all to redouble our efforts in our lives, our own personal lives, and in our church to build on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are, we're just grateful today for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful that you sent Jesus in your kindness and in your grace to save his people from their sins. We thank you that you have 
uh, formed those people and you have enfolded them into a community, into a fellowship, into the church, into this church. But Father, we pray that we never leave that foundation of Christ. We pray that your church would be built on that foundation. We pray that you would help us to see Christ in every, uh, every situation that we face as a church, as individuals. That we would not just say, what would Jesus do? But that we would really think about who Jesus is. Help us to follow his commands. Help us to uh, recognize and to apply what he accomplished. We pray that you would help us as a church to take care how we build upon that foundation. And then help us to live in the reality that God's spirit dwells within us. Help us to be sufficiently stunned by that certainty. And then to live and to move and to breathe with that wonderful reality pervading our lives and our actions. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.